Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. And Happy New Year, State of the Bay listeners. We are really happy that you've tuned into the show, and we're looking forward to bringing you a year of live and local shows that focus on interesting stories and storytellers here in the Bay Area. If you have a story to tell or you'd like us to cover an issue or cause, reach out to us. We're at stateofthebay at KALW.org, and we love getting your emails, calls, and tweets. Your engagement means a lot to us, so please be in touch. And now for tonight's show, we'll be talking with journalist and historian Adam Hochschild about his new book, American at Midnight, which chronicles a period of domestic unrest and political repression during and after World War One. And later in the hour, Ethan Elkind interviews Archbishop Franzo King about the Church of St. John Coltrane and its history in San Francisco since its founding over 50 years ago. Of course, in our fair city, we have a church that has canonized the jazz great John Coltrane. You'll definitely want to stick around for that. But first, we're talking rain, wind, and potentially, at least according to the weather forecast, small tornadoes over the water tonight. The Bay Area has been hit with its fifth atmospheric river in less than two weeks. Today, flooding has shut down parts of 101 near Gilroy. The National Weather Service just tweeted that this section of 101 is basically a river. Last week, the Oakland Zoo shut down when an underground creek emerged on the property, and many folks are still mopping up from the last week's storms with flooded basements, businesses, and roads. San Francisco's Mayor London Breed declared a state of emergency due to the weather, probably because the city has had its wettest 10 days in over a century with over 10 inches of rain from December 31st to January 4th. Here to help us assess the effects of these storms and how local governments has reacted is Kate Galbraith. She's the San Francisco Chronicle climate editor. Welcome to State of the Bay, Kate. Kate, are you there? Well, while we're waiting for Kate to join us, um, I will say that I managed to avoid a little bit of weather today. But Kate, are you there? Yes. Now I can hear. I'm sorry. I may have had some connectivity issues. Oh, yeah. No worries. That happens. I mean, on a rainy day like today. Have you managed to stay dry today, Kate? Uh, I have, yes. But uh, our garage was among many of those that flooded uh, here in the city on uh, December 31st. So it's it's been a ride. Oh, that is not a great way to, to greet the new year. Were you able to clear, clear it all out? Uh, yes. Fortunately, not me personally. I was out of town. But uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> yes, it got done. The best way to have a natural disaster at your house is to not be there, I think. Um, so what's been the big story today when it comes to weather? Wow, there are stories just sprouting um, all over the place uh, in in California, particularly on the the central coast um, today. Saw a sort of slow moving um, atmospheric river, you know, big band of of water coming through the sky that that really just kind of deluged um, the central coast. Uh, Santa Cruz County um, um, got hit again. Uh, San Luis Obispo County, in a you know story that just breaks my heart, like a five year old child you know, was seems to have been swept away in floodwaters oh. after he and his mother, um, who was rescued, got trapped in a car. I mean, it's just oh. just awful. I can't stop thinking about it. And, you know, in uh, Santa Barbara County is getting hit um, quite significantly tonight. They've ordered, um, for example, an evacuation of, of uh, the entire community of, of Montecito, where, you know, a number of celebrities like uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle um, live. So, 
um, you, you know, due to flood, landslide um, uh, risk on burn scars, um, all those factors. So it's it's a pretty crazy weather day and clearly a pretty crazy weather week. Yeah. I mean, last week's bomb cyclone, um, as they called it on Wednesday, you know, there was a lot of buildup to that. It came in and it blew into the city and the Bay Area around Wednesday night. That seems almost less than what's happening today. Or is was today's storm worse or is it just the cumulative effect of all these storms? Well, I think it just really depends um, depends where you're at. I mean, the uh, the December 31st storm uh, clearly was, you know, a bit of a catastrophe for San Francisco with, you know, nearly the um, second highest um, uh, with with the second highest amount of rainfall the city has has recorded, and then, you know, the bomb cyclone sort of uh, uh, hitting really everywhere with significant wind gusts, you know, of up to 100 uh, miles per hour um, on, you know, at least one Bay Area. Uh, mountain and then you know kicking up the the ocean to kind of flood into um, communities like Capitola um, um, and Santa Cruz. So it it really is just kind of hitting in different different spots. Mm-hmm. And you know how has the city of San Francisco and you know cities around us like Berkeley and Oakland how they managed the flooding? Uh, I'm sorry, I. I couldn't hear the, the question. Could you repeat Yeah, it? no. How have cities um, like San Francisco and other cities around us like Oakland and Berkeley handled the flooding? Yeah, well, I mean, they're uh, out to try to um, keep storm drains clear. That's clearly a, a tremendous um, um, priority. People are adopting storm drains to keep them clear. They're trying to, you know, help uh, uh, folks um uh, who don't have homes, who live in tents, um, um, get them into shelters, opening new shelters, making it easier for people to um, um, get into shelters, opening up, declaring disasters to uh, uh, free up aid, uh, just a number of responses. Mm-hmm. Well, you, let's talk a little bit about the unhoused response. Are you saying that they have opened up more shelters for people? And are they being? is the city being successful in encouraging people to get off the streets? That's right. I mean, it's uh, the city is encouraging people to get off the streets in these uh, challenging uh, times of just torrential sort of deluges. But, um, you know, people are are understandably uh, concerned about their belongings, um, um, what will happen to them. City officials are trying to uh, provide uh, uh, reassurance and really just take that message out um, um, to folks that, you know, there are shelter beds available um, um, if if wanted, that's been true in San Francisco uh, and Oakland. And, you know, they've said that even if uh, the beds run out, they'll be giving people, um, you know, mats or chairs, you know, shelter is is available. Um, but some some people are, are choosing to, to stay out. I did see today that, um, you know, a really sad report in Sacramento uh, County, I believe that uh, two uh, unhoused people, uh, died um, uh, when a tree fell on their their tent. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's tremendously sort of risky and and problematic out there. Well, I mean the loss of life that you've described with people being swept away in floods and you know um, killed by trees just makes it clear that these storms are nothing to um, jo- fool around about. I mean they really are serious. Yeah, no, these atmospheric rivers are just major bands of of water in the sky. I mean they don't really look like uh, normal storms. If you kind of look at the these cool images that the weather people uh, put up, you just see this this stream of water in the sky coming over toward us from Hawaii. And in this in recent 
um, weeks, you know, the jet stream has just been aimed like directly um, um, at California. And, you know, these these rivers are uh, these rivers in the sky, you know, which can carry kind of more water at a single point than, you know, the Amazon River. Mm. Um, they're, they're a really important source of water for California. Um, you know, the problem clearly comes when they're just kind of hitting uh, hitting us back to back. And that's been and that's been what's happening. I mean, the, with the climate changing, the weather has just become more extreme. I mean, it's on days like today when it's pouring rain, it's hard to remember that we are in a drought. How have these um, rainstorms impacted our drought situation? Are our reservoirs filled? Well, our, our largest reservoirs have a lot of capacity. Um, you know, Lake Shasta, for example, which is the largest reservoir in California, um, last I checked is, uh, even with recent rains is only at like 35% of its total capacity. Mm. So, you know, it's got, that, that's a lot of water to, to fill up. And even with, you know, kind of significant storm would only raise that, you know, maybe four, uh, percentage points, you know, most recently the, there, there's definitely been improvement in, in drought, you know, a month ago, uh, uh, you know, there was parts of the state were still in uh, a category called exceptional drought, which is um, the worst. Um, but now every part of the state is out of exceptional drought. But, you know, 100 percent of the state is still in drought. Mm. So there's there's definitely um, a ways to go. And, and the reason there's so much capacity in reservoirs is because they were historically low. So we'd have a long way to go before they filled up. I mean, we would have, as I, I imagine. That's right. I mean, the the three year uh, very intense drought has just kind of drained them, and and you know officials keep them you know not at full capacity for a reason. They don't want the reservoirs to overflow and mm-hmm. and damage uh, the communities uh, around them. Uh, well, another aspect of not just rain, we've gotten a tremendous amount of snow up in the Sierras and the snowpack is over 100 percent of where it normally is at this time. Um, how will that impact the drought? Uh, sorry, the, the question was about the snowpack. The snowpack, yeah. How will the snowpack itself impact the drought? I mean, I, I understand it's yeah, over I mean, 100%. Kind of, yeah, it's it's kind of at crazy levels right now. I mean, I haven't been skiing, but it looks pretty awesome if you can get yeah. there between storms. You know, uh, like 200% of, of normal and counting. I mean, there, there's more left to dump. You know, and, and the Sierra snow is just, it's not a, a reservoir in the in the classic sense of a, a lake, um, but it's, you know, this reservoir that just kind of will melt um, uh, slowly and is really significant um, for the state's water supply. So, you know, kind of getting to 200% of normal is really good. But, you know, I will say that, you know, a year ago we had those significant storms uh, toward, toward the end of, uh, what would it be, 2021? Yeah. And, Sierra snowpack was well above normal, and then it just stopped raining. It Mm. got a little hot, and and the snowpack just dipped down to like really low. Yeah, so it just kind of depends. I mean, is there? It's it's hard to forecast the weather, and um, at at least that far out. But that could very well happen again this year, right? It's tons of snow up in the Sierras, and then just a heat spell that melts it all. Yeah, I mean, the climate has just gotten uh, uh, very challenging to predict. Um, You know, in the near term, people are seeing, you know, certainly another storm coming. We're going to get a bit of a break 
uh, in the next few days. And then another, uh, I mean, I mean there's still going to be rain uh, over the next few days, but, you know, by Thursday, it'll be a little bit dry. And then another storm coming uh, over the weekend. I haven't looked yet. I've been too busy with the <laughs> storms today to like try to figure out what they're forecasting for after the weekend. But, you know, clearly been, you know, there's, there's a weather pattern that is just continuing to hit us. Yeah. There's been um, some concern about trees. The ground is really saturated. Um, you know, I saw reports on Twitter today about like a, a large cypress tree in Golden Gate Park falling over. I've seen trees come come down. If you're living in the city, is the city of San Francisco offering any guidance to people about down trees? Um, that is a great question. Um, I don't honestly know the answer to that. I mean, the city seems to uh, take care of uh, uh, sidewalk um, trees at this point. But, you know, I I would assume just, you know, if you're concerned, um, clearly call the city, call call 311 um, uh, if you have concerns about a tree. But yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. Well, you were on Nightstorm coverage last Wednesday, and you've obviously been covering it closely today. Um you know, what was that like for you that that evening and what's it been like in the newsroom with all this coverage, um, with all this this news on rain? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's been nonstop. Um, it's been a little bit exhausting. It feels kind of like um, the heat wave that we experienced um, in September. Uh, we've been running a live blog with news just kind of pounding down from all directions. And, you know, I've been running that blog and it's just exhausting or, you know, completely multitasking. And, and, you know, we've got folks out, out in the field, you know, one of a uh, uh, couple folks in the Santa Cruz area um, this morning. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, it's, it's, it's both intense and it's also energizing because we're, you know, delivering important sort of safety messages uh, to our, to our community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and what are you anticipating in the next days ahead? You said there'd be a little bit of break in the rain. Um, are the storms that are forecast of equal strength to what we're seeing now? I, I've only really read about the one that's coming in next weekend, and I don't think it's, <clears throat> gosh, losing my voice here. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think it's of equal strength as of now um, to uh, what we've seen over the past week. But, you know, things can clearly change. That's that's several days out. And again, it just kind of depends where it hits. You know, if it hits an area that's really, really saturated where the rivers are high, that's that's very problematic. Yeah. Well, I'm wishing you a lot of luck in the next days ahead, Kate, because it's going to be quite busy. Um, Just for last thing, for Bay Area listeners who want to be more prepared in the future, um, what should they be thinking about as they prepare for more rain? I mean, just think about safety first. You know, um, where we see uh, accidents where people are, you know, kind of on the roads where, you know, it'd be really important for folks to stay off the roads for, um, you know, both for their safety and so that emergency responders can, uh, can get through. So, you know, safety first, um, sandbags are, are often available, uh, from your local community. You can, you know, kind of get those to protect your home and, you know, just, just err on the side of, of caution. I would say these storms are not to be messed with.
Well, that's certainly good advice, and we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us here on State of the Bay, Kate Galbraith. She is um, climate editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Coming next up on State of the Bay, we'll talk to historian Adam Hochschild about his new book, American Midnight. It talks about a time of great domestic unrest and political repression. Spoiler alert, it's not about the last four years. It's about a period of history over 100 years ago that we seem to have forgotten. That's right after the break. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. Self-appointed vigilantes who executed citizens' arrests, a government that banned newspapers and magazines to limit what could be written and printed, thousands of political prisoners thrown into jail for expressing their opinion, both in public and in private. The nation I've just described has all the markings of an authoritarian regime, but I'm not talking about the Soviet Union or communist China. I'm actually talking about the United States a hundred years ago during a time of tumult that from 1917 to 21 that our guest tonight, Adam Hochschild, has called American Midnight. That's also the title of his latest book. You might know Adam Hochschild for his devastating history, The Belgian Congo, King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, horror, and heroism, heroism in colonial Africa, which was a finalist for the National Books Critics Circle Award. Hochschild is also a historian and lecturer at UC Berkeley School of Journalism and the founder and former co-editor of the magazine Mother Jones. We are so delighted to have you here at State of the Bay, Adam. Well, good to be with you, Grace. Yeah. Um, So I really enjoyed this book, and I want to tell all our listeners to grab a copy. Again, it's American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. And your book focuses on this very specific period in American history, 1917 to 1921. And you've called this time a deep and sudden crisis. Can you help set the scene? What events caused the American government and its people to revert to such repression? Well, you know, sometimes in this country, like all countries, there are sources of tension that are kind of simmering under the surface. And I think if you roll back the clock to the United States in 1917, there were several of these, and then some things happened that made them erupt. One tension was between nativists and immigrants. Uh, The United States had received a flood of immigration Uh, for the preceding, you know, 30 or 40 years before 1917, much of it coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. And for people who'd been here several generations, who were mostly of Anglo-Saxon stock, they objected to the newcomers, who were mostly Jews, Poles, and Italians. A lot of anti-immigrant feeling, which feels very familiar to us today, although the immigrants that the Today's rage is directed against are those coming over the southern border. Then it was, as I say, you know, Jews and Poles and Italians. That was one tension. Another tension was that between black and white Americans, the Great Migration had started in earnest around 1910, where uh, hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of black people left the South, fleeing a region where there was often 
as many as one lynching a week over the course of the year, looking for safety, looking for better jobs. They came to northern cities where they often found people didn't want them there because if they moved into a neighborhood, property values went down. They were competing for jobs with white people, often immigrants who were already there. That was another tension. Third tension was between business and labor. Routinely, dozens of people were killed in labor battles every year. In 1913-14 alone, more than 70 people, some of them women and children, were killed by government militia and company detectives in a Colorado miners' strike. So you have all this stuff boiling under the surface in the United States of 1917. And then two things happened that year. One, the U.S. entered the First World War. And the other was that in Russia, the revolution happened and the radical Bolsheviks took over. And entering a war always makes a country go somewhat crazy. Mm. And the Russian revolution also led to a lot of paranoia among the American establishment who felt that it was going to, it might spread here. And that's what kicked off this long period of repression. It doesn't sound like an awesome time, Adam, um, in the United States. And presiding over it was Woodrow Wilson. And my textbook version of history in, in that version, you know, Woodrow Wilson was the president who fought hard for the League of Nations that preceded the United Nations. He was the former president of Princeton, a governor of New Jersey. I mean, an upstanding man. In today's version of who Woodrow Wilson is, I mean, there's been a real... Um, revamping of understanding of what he stood for. And that's part of, partly in your book. Tell us a little bit about how Wilson was perceived then and how we see him today. Well, he was a very paradoxical president. You can't sort of unconditionally loathe him the mm. way you can some more recent presidents I could mention. <laughs> uh, but he was a paradox. He was an intellectual. He was the most scholarly, dignified president imaginable, former university president, written a dozen books, a friend of writers and artists and so forth. And for his first term, he was something of a progressive on issues like child labor, the income tax, regulation of business and so forth. He was an idealist. He had this plan for the League of Nations with the United States at its center, which would forever prevent wars and, and stop countries from settling their differences by on the battlefield instead in a great forum where they would talk. In actual fact, I don't think it would have been any more successful at stopping wars than the United Nations has been since 1945. Mm. But, you know, it was still an idealistic thing to believe in. At the same time, he presided over what I think was the worst assault on civil liberties in the United States since the immediate aftermath of slavery. Mm. During his second term, 1917 to 21, uh, his administration shut down 75 newspapers and magazines because he didn't like their politics. Uh, it put roughly a thousand Americans in jail for a year or more and a much larger number for shorter periods solely because of things they wrote or said. And it empowered a nationwide vigilante group, which made citizens arrests by the tens of thousands, often roughing up people in the process. You know, you write in your book that your mother 
has memories of Wilson coming to to power, that she was 16 at the time. And it was sort of a joyful moment when Wilson ascended to the presidency. I mean, how does that inflect how you look at that time? I mean, having that personal connection. Well, I feel a personal connection to this era, even though it was long before I was born, Mm -hmm. because both my parents lived through it and talked about it. My mother's family knew Wilson because her father, my grandfather, was a professor at Princeton, uh, head of a department there. He'd actually been Wilson's professor at Johns Hopkins University when Wilson had been a student there. And when Wilson was first elected president in 1912, uh, my grandfather took his three daughters, one of them my mother, over to his house to congratulate him. Uh, And my mother, you know, up until, you know, during that period felt like so many people did in this country that going to war was a glorious thing and that the United States was somehow or other fighting for freedom in Europe and the world would be a better place after the war was over. She later came to regret that point of view, but that's how she felt as a teenager. My father, meanwhile, was living in a family in New York where his father, who was his parents were Jewish, His father was an immigrant from Germany. They spoke German at home, but they were terrified of doing so on the street because you could get beaten up for that. Uh, Such was the hysteria against Germany that uh, broke out the moment the U.S. entered the war. There were states that passed laws against speaking German in public or on the telephone. There were bonfires of German books. You can actually find pictures of this on, on the, the Internet. Bonfires in the United States of books that were in German because a lot of schools and colleges uh, taught German. So my father found this a very frightening time, tried desperately to get into the army mm in order to prove his patriotism and protect his family. It's really fascinating in the sense that um, Wilson also, I mean, you mentioned that this was his second term, and famously he was uh, quite ill at the time, and his wife Edith downplayed just how ill Wilson was. Historians have suggested that she really did run the White House on some level. Did she share Wilson's views? You know, it's hard to say about her because she didn't, give leave us much record of her personal opinions but wilson a couple of years into his second term uh, although he knew all this repression that was going on mm-hmm. uh that didn't happen in his ignorance he knew all about it. he just wasn't very interested in it because he was so focused on getting the u.s into, into the league of nations he had a severe stroke and was basically out of commission for a year or more And his wife, his doctor, and his chief of staff uh, basically made decisions during that time. Uh, You know, things were still signed by Wilson after when it took a few months before he could make something resembling a signature. But they decided what issues came before him, uh, what issues were to be presented to him. So they exerted enormous power. Nobody really knows how much. Uh, Wilson didn't really fully regain his ability to function, to run a cabinet meeting and so Mm -hmm. on, before his second term came to an end. Oh, it's just this. I mean, this is a period of time that 
really when I was looking at your book and reading and I'm like, I was an American history major and I know not that much about this and you've really uncovered a lot. Before we go into our next set of questions, I wanted to reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio 91.7 KLW Bay Area and I'm your host, Grace Wan. We're discussing political repression and violence in the United States during and after World War One with journalist and historian Adam Hochschild. Do you see any connections between the period after World War One and today? Are you worried about political violence in the United States? And if so, why or why not? You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255 or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. And we're on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. So we were talking about Woodrow Wilson's um, presiding over this very dark time in American history and the fact that the war, the war against Germany kind of was the um, shield the reason why there was so much repression. And you mentioned earlier about Wilson being okay with shutting down um, magazines and um, newspapers that d- expressed dissent over the United States position in the war. Tell us a little bit more about that. how that happened. Was that the federal government literally going in and shutting down a magazine or was it done another way? Well, here's what happened. The newspapers and magazines that got shut down, and this is obviously a part of the story that was of much concern uh, to me, having (laughs) worked in newspapers and magazines uh, much of my life. Hits close to Uh, home, Adam. (laughs) That's right. I don't want them coming coming for me. what happened was soon after the U.S., a couple of weeks after the U.S. ended the war, the Wilson administration introduced into Congress the Espionage Act, an amended version of which is still with us, uh, but much amended. And Congress passed it several weeks later. This gave the power to censor the press to the Postmaster General. Now, that power could not have fallen into worse hands. The Postmaster <laughs> General was a fellow named Albert Burleson, who was an arch segregationist, former congressman from Texas. His family had actually owned 20 slaves at the time that he was born. And he hated uh, the black press. He hated the socialist press. And of most concern to the Wilson administration at that point, he hated any newspaper or magazine that argued against U.S. participation in the war. And there were quite a lot of them because it was uh, not a united country that went to war. There were many Americans who felt they should have no part of this quarrel in Europe, that it was thousands of miles away, that it didn't concern us. Uh, This feeling was especially strong on the left, although not limited to the left. Uh, but people like in the Socialist Party felt, you know, the workers of the world should be fighting the capitalists and not each other. But many other Americans, you know, especially in rural areas and so on, felt that quarrel is no concern of ours. So there was a lot of opposition to the war. This was the excuse that was used to close down those newspapers and magazine, which Postmaster General Burleson did by not allowing them to use the U.S. mail. He had the power to declare a publication unmailable. And for a weekly, a monthly, a journal of opinion, the vast majority of the country's socialist press, the vast majority of its foreign language press, they depended on the mail to reach their readers because this was before radio, TV, the Internet. 
so that's how this 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 power was used. And really, the socialist press, which had a combined readership of about two million, was almost completely crushed during this period. I mean, in some great magazines, you mentioned um, one that was like a precursor to the New Yorker magazine was shut down at the masses. I think it was a literary monthly. Um, I liked in the book how I think Burleson was described as maybe not the worst postmaster that was ever um, existed, but really the worst human being ever to take that job. So <laughs> That's right. You have to give him credit for introducing airmail and parcel post. <laughs> I mean, you're trying to be fair, right? You're trying to be fair. So, I mean, so you have this shutdown of the press, which nobody seems to have been too disturbed by. I mean, I don't I it's not like the American people said, you can't do this. We believe in the First Amendment and free speech. And at the same time, you're seeing what I found really shocking were the imprisonment of political prisoners, people who had voiced a dissenting point of view, sometimes in public and sometimes in private and being thrown into jail. Tell us a little bit about how widespread that was, and were these federal cases or state cases? How was this happening? You know, I mentioned, you know, roughly a 1,000 people sent to jail for a year or more for solely for things that they wrote or said. Uh, about half of those were federal cases, and about half of them were state cases, because states all over the country, including California, passed copycat versions of the Espionage Act so that they could get in on the the fun of repressing dissidents Mm. as well. Uh, And, you know, for instance, if you compare things to today, in 2016, when Donald Trump was running his first campaign for for president, his followers chanted, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up about Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton. Well, in 1918, Woodrow Wilson did lock up a former opponent of his, Eugene Debs, who had won 6% of the popular vote for president in 1912, uh, a court uh, actually presided over by the former law partner of Wilson's secretary of war, sentenced Debs to 10 years in prison for speaking out against the, the war. Debs, who was a longtime socialist uh, leader, was a very gentle man, deeply committed to nonviolence, deeply committed to the electoral process. And he was still in prison in November of 1920 when he received 900,000 votes for president on the socialist ticket. Amazing. I mean, he was in a federal penitentiary in Atlanta, right? I mean, it was no joke where where they put him into jail. I mean, think about that. An American presidential candidate thrown into jail for expressing a dissident point of view about the nation going to war. I mean, it doesn't even sound like a, a piece of American history. No, and it's the kind of history we tend not to get taught in schools because all countries and we're no exception, like to present sanitized versions of their histories. And I think one of my hopes with this book, American Midnight, is that I can desanitize that history a little bit, especially at a time like today when we again have to worry uh, about all those people out there who would like to repress dissident opinion. You know, Donald Trump used to say the press is the enemy of the American people. Mm -hmm. 100 years ago, 
it was treated that way by the government. Well, and I, I'm just curious, I mean, was that a rallying cry for the everyday American that that was there suddenly suspicion about the press itself and the media in the same way there is today? Or did the press have such power that it was just sort of, and the government, that it was just sort of accepted, like they're doing their best for us and I'm not going to question that? You know, that's a little hard to answer because there weren't opinion polls in those days. Mm -hmm. So we can't say what percentage of the population approved of this or disapproved or or whatever. But certainly among people who had the ability to leave us a record of their thoughts because they were writers or journalists or whatever, they were deeply upset with this repression of of dissenting voices in the press. Uh, You mentioned a while ago, the magazine uh, was called The Masses, that was sort of a precursor to The New Yorker. Definitely the best magazine in the country at the time. It published people like John Reed, Walter Lippmann, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Mm. Sherwood Anderson. uh, And it was canceled by the Postmaster General. One of the things that he objected to was a cartoon that showed the Liberty Bell crumbling. Oh, I mean, talk about thin-skinned, perhaps a snowflake there. Um, I wanted to read an email from a listener who asks, um, this is an email from George, what is your process for researching history that took place a century ago? Where do you go to find new information about the main players in this story? Um, Yeah, what is your process Well, I'm very blessed in that I live less than 15 minutes walk from one of the world's great libraries at the University of California at Berkeley. They have now, I believe, 13 million items, um, mostly books, but other items as well. And that's enough to get you started on something. (laughs) I would say, yeah. (laughs) So I spend a lot of time in the library stacks. And then in some cases, uh, you know, you have to go places often if you want to see somebody's personal papers uh, or letters. Uh, That's often not in a library, but some special archive. So I've been to the National Archives. I've I've used the the Hoover Archive at Stanford. Um, Actually, I've been to the National Archives, both the main archive in Washington, and then there's a subsidiary one in Maryland. Um, And I love looking at, you know, original documents, your primary sources. For example, one of my characters in the book was an undercover agent who was sent by the Bureau of Investigation, which was basically the FBI. They added federal to their name a few years later. He was sent to infiltrate the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania chapter of the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies, the Mm. country's most militant and colorful labor union. He was so good at his infiltration that he got elected secretary of the local (laughs) Wobbly branch and found himself giving speeches at demonstrations and leading marches and so forth. Um, And the whole time he was sending three or four reports a week to the Justice Department. Uh, to the, the Bureau of Investigation. And today, you know, they're all in the National Archives and you can read them. I mean, fascinating. I call that entrapment. But um, <laughs> the, the stories, the characters in this book are really fascinating. And I'm just, I mean, there are a couple villains like the Postmaster General that you spoke about earlier and J. Edgar Hoover himself, um, the former head of the FBI. He appears 
early on in his career um, in some of the most nefarious uh, episodes and chapters in, in American history, the Palmer Raids. Tell us about how J. Edgar Hoover played a role here. Well, he got his start on his long career, you know, which throughout much of the 20th century, he was the most powerful unelected American of his time. When he was 24 years old, uh, he was made head of something called the Radical Division of the Justice Department, uh, which was designed to snoop on radicals. They were worried about people who were opposing the war. They were worried about people who might want to try to do something like the Russian Revolution in the United States. And he was working for the attorney general, a very ambitious man, A. Mitchell Palmer, who was for a long time the leading Democratic candidate for president, the leading candidate to be the, the Democratic nominee for president in 1920. And Palmer thought he could make his name as a law and order candidate if he rounded up a lot of radicals and deported them because you could deport people uh, you didn't like if they weren't American citizens. And many of these millions of, of immigrants who'd come into this country at this period had never bothered to formalize their citizenship. It didn't seem to be necessary when the country was welcoming immigrants. So there were what has gone down in history as the Palmer Raids, late 1919, early 1920, some 10,000 people rounded up. They really should be called the Hoover Raids because it was Hoover who planned and organized them. Mm. And they hoped to, uh, Hoover and Palmer, to deport thousands of these people uh, and show the country that they were ridding the nation of radicals. Their plans were foiled by uh, a guy who's one of my heroes in the book, uh, Louis F. Post. Shall I tell you about him? Oh, he is like the unsung hero of this period. Honestly, I was just so impressed by him. But yeah, tell our listeners all about him because they'll want to learn more. Well, here was the thing that Hoover and Palmer didn't count on. As people in the Justice Department, their department had the ability to round up all these radicals and hold them in jail. But deportations had to be approved by something called the Immigration Bureau, which fell under the Department of Labor. And uh, the Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. His deputy, who normally would have taken over, just resigned to run for Congress. And the acting Secretary of Labor was the number three person in the department, Louis F. Post, who was a remarkably good guy. He was not <laughs> an anarchist. He was not a socialist. He was not a communist, but he was a strong believer in civil liberties. He didn't believe anybody should be deported from the United States because of their political opinions. And he managed to invalidate the arrest warrants of thousands of these people that Hoover and Palmer had put in jail, let them out, saved thousands of people from being deported, uh, Hoover and Palmer were furious and uh, got Congress to investigate him. Uh, Post, who was very good on his feet, uh, charmed the congressional committee that was looking into him. They got the American Legion to demand his firing, but unsuccessfully. He remained in office until the last day of the uh, Wilson administration. I mean, it is inc it's incredible that it came down to one person who had a strong set of values and a real understanding of the Constitution. And also, as you point out in your book, how bureaucracy works. I mean, he was rather deft on his feet. He survived that. Um, and just to put a 
point on it. I mean, you quote Alan Brinkley, an hist- American historian who called this period the single greatest violation of civil liberties in U.S. history um, in that, you know, people were being deported for their political beliefs. And among those was Emma Goldman, um, that firebrand socialist who toured the country speaking out and against injustice and for workers' rights. She was one of the people who was supposed to be deported, wasn't she? And she was deported. Yeah. Uh, and she had, uh, a re- because she had spoken out very strongly against the war, spent two years in prison because of that, but she was not formally an American citizen, even though she'd been here for 35 years. So mm. Hoover seized on that to deport her. And she and uh, 248 other radicals were shipped off uh, out of the country uh, just a, a couple days before Christmas uh, in 1919. And actually Hoover, who was riding high and wanting to show his, his, his might at this wave of deportations that he was causing, actually accompanied these folks to the boat they were they were taken by a barge pushed by a tugboat uh, across New York Harbor to where the ship that was going to take them into exile was waiting. And in the kitchen of the tugboat, Hoover and Emma Goldman had an argument. And we know what they said because Hoover had invited a couple of congressmen along to see what he was doing in this deportation work. And one of them told the House of Representatives about their conversation. Now, why that scene is not in a thousand history books, I do not know. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, well, tell the story because she really gives him a piece of her mind. It was such it was the greatest comeback of all time to J. Edgar. Yeah, Hoover, at one point he said to her, haven't I given you a fair deal, uh, Miss Goldman? And she said, we shouldn't expect from anybody more than he is capable of. <laughs> I thought that was so great. I was shocked it wasn't in the Broadway play Angels in America, you know, because which yeah. features J. Edgar Hoover. Um, so I, I just that's a great part about your book is that it has so many moments where it brings people to life who, you know, we don't really um, think about. I mean, I was reading about Eugene Debs imprisonment and. I knew him as a socialist president candidate, but I didn't know so much about how he had spent all this time uh, in prison just because he opposed a war. So we've talked about the villains. We've talked about some of the heroes of this period. And I guess what I want to ask you is there's so many um, parallels that one could easily make about this time and the time we're living in today. But now that you've spent so much time immersed in this period, what what are your takeaways Well, I think it reminds you that all of this stuff that boiled up again uh, during the the Trump years, it was expressed in that that January 6th uh, invasion of the Capitol two years ago. These things have long been with us. Uh, You know, Trump raged and many people are still raging about deporting unwanted immigrants from the United States. Well, you know, up to the very last minute, both the leading candidates for the Republican and Democratic nomination for president in 1920 were campaigning on promises of mass deportations. So that tension has been with us for a long time. 
the tensions between black and white Americans have been with us for a long time. And in today, somewhat more subdued and indirect, so is the tension between business and labor. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of continuities in this country. Um, we have to fear those dark forces that are there, never far below the surface. I do think one thing you got to say for the United States of today is that I think people have a stronger and better appreciation of civil liberties and the First Amendment than they did 100 years ago. Yeah. I mean, do you – a part of it is that what I found interesting in your book is that it's a period of time that really isn't a focus of American history. I mean, I think a lot of the things that you've mentioned, the Pomerades, for example, or the mass deportations, are almost footnotes. Um, and it's the fact that we aren't really thinking or talking about the, the times that have the really troubled times that have come before that might put us have put us into the moment that we are today. So, as a historian. You know, your work is really focused on civil rights. And I mean, I loved King Leopold's ghost. I mean, talking about, you know, the the rights of people whose voices aren't really heard. I mean, is that something that you want to see more people focus on? And will that be something that you'll be working on for your next piece? Uh, I hope so. Uh, I haven't found a subject for the next book yet, but it often takes me a year or two to do that. But I, I do want to get away from this customary telling of our history we always have, where you focus on, you know, things we, we can be proud, proud of. Mm -hmm. The greatest generation that won World War II, the founding fathers, um, stuff like that. You'll never catch me writing a book on the founding fathers. There are <laughs> those out there already. I'm interested in the parts of his past that a country tends to ignore, because often those are the most revealing things. I mean, and uh, and it really will sit with you. And I have to say, looking at the, the cover of the book, which I have, the hard co copy, hardback, you know, there's a picture on the front of these women and children, and they have signs saying, you know, democracy and political prisoners don't mix and shall justice die. We are innocent victims. And it's been four years since I've seen my father. I mean, this is a real and they're standing in front of the White House. I mean, this is a real moment in American history worth remembering. It sure is. And uh, those demonstrators in front of the White House had actually been uh, on a, a sort of march. They were mostly wives and children of political prisoners who had paraded down the main streets of uh, more than a dozen cities and towns throughout the Midwest and Northeast, protesting that their husbands and fathers were still in prison. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that political imprisonment could go on in the United States on such a large scale is really a shocking thing. Yeah. And with that thought, we're going to leave it there. I want to thank you so much for joining us here on State of the Bay, Adam. Well, thank you, Grace. It was a real pleasure talking to you, and, and uh, you obviously read the book carefully, and I appreciate that. Oh, well, I am a lover of history, so we hope to have you on next for, next time for your next book. Um, okay. We were talking to Adam Hochschild. He's the author of American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Definitely pick it up at your local independent bookstore. And coming up after the break, we'll explore the Church of St. John Coltrane and the experience of spreading the jazz icons gospel in San Francisco for over 50 years. Stay with us.
1965, San Francisco's changing Fillmore District was still known as the Harlem of the West, and it was visited by jazz legends from around the country. It was there that Franzo and Marina King had an experience of the divine, a spiritual awakening, while at a show featuring jazz saxophonist John Coltrane. They referred to it as their, quote, sound baptism. So this led to the founding of the spiritual community that became the Church of St. John Coltrane. And here to join me to share the experience spreading the jazz icon's gospel in San Francisco for over 50 years is Archbishop Franzo King. Welcome to State of the Bay, Archbishop King. Thank you very much. So, Archbishop King, what did you and your wife hear that night in 1965 that was so powerful? Well, we heard John Coltrane classic quartet that was performing at the jazz workshop. Elvin Jones, McCoy Turner, and Jimmy Garrison. You know, Will I Am Coltrane baptized with sound. Uh-huh. And there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The thundering sound drums is like the thunder in the heavens when there's a rainstorm. And we were drenched in that sound, immersed in it totally and completely. And uh, we experienced not necessarily just a musical thing, but it was as if they were speaking in a different tongue. Kind of like a Pentecostal experience. And was this the Love Supreme that was at the time of that album coming out that you heard in the well, show? Well, it was after the album of Love Supreme. The Love Supreme album came out in 1964. This was 1965, on um, uh, September 18th. I, I know it was the 18th. It was our wedding anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> and we were celebrating that. And then the celebration became a great gift. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the album, A Love Supreme, I just mentioned. So this is sort of a, a founding document of sorts for your church. Can you describe how this album plays into the church and, and maybe how the church came out of your experience at the show? Well, you know, John Coltrane at one time had said that in his estimation, the music was rising and therefore needed somewhere else to be played. And it wasn't proper or appropriate to have a cash register going off in the middle of a Jimmy Garrison solo. And when he said somewhere else to be played, I said, wow, a church. Because that was definitely a religious experience at the time in terms of the spirituality and the power of it was like getting caught in a rainstorm. Mm. We didn't know if it was going to bring floods of flowers, but it did flood our heart, you know. And mm-hmm. gave growth to this. But this Love Supreme album, it's an album that gives John Coltrane's testament. He opens up by saying, Dear listen." So he's speaking to the listeners. And at that time, we were saying that, yeah, this requires... Listening and repeating this. So the Love Supreme album was different because here we got a jazz musician, first of all, in the line of notes, saying, all praise be to God, to whom all praise is due. Yes, it is true, seeking ye shall turn, which is quoting Jesus there, and only through him can we know the most wondrous struggles. 
So it suggests very strongly to us that this music was not in the secular sense, but it was spiritual. I had a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more protective life. And at that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and the privilege to make others happy through music. I think it's important that we understand how important that particular album is. Because with that album, not only do you have his testimony, but the way the music is laid out and the number and the name of the composition is important to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. It says that the first one is acknowledgement, resolutions, pursuance, and then the song. So it's like that's formula. You acknowledge, you resolve, you pursue, and a love supreme is waiting for you. Manifestation, interpretation, application, manifestation. Melody, mm-hmm. huh? rhythm, the Holy Ghost. Well, it's such a unique jazz album. There really is nothing like it. And I think it's just amazing how you've been able to translate this into a whole kind of spiritual practice. And I wanted to get a sense of what your church services are like. How do you translate this music into uh, a typical church service? Well, we're a part of the great African Orthodox Church which has a liturgy, which is akin to the Western Rites Church. So that means you have confession, you have the introit, and we've taken those in the Lord's Prayer and we've put it to a cold chain composition. Or instead of having Anglican kind of service, when we do the Lord's Prayer, we do it to John Coltrane composition. And can anyone show up to your church service? Is it open to the public? It's open to the public, for sure. And we also have a co-chain Vesper services that we do twice a year at Grace Cathedral, honoring John Coltrane's ascension. And we've been ambassadors for the city of San Francisco. We are legacy business. I have to ask what it's like being one of the few remaining cultural legacies of this really rich era in not just jazz music, but in musical history in San Francisco. What is that like? What role does the church play now in keeping that tradition alive? Well, as you know, the development and out-migration of the African-American community, what was once known as the Harlem of the West, it is no longer as vibrant as it was, say, up until the early 60s, late 60s and early 70s. And for people who aren't familiar with the music of John Coltrane, is there a piece, a particular piece or an album that you think would be a good introduction to his work? Well, I would say Lab Supreme is a very good place to begin. You know, there are other compositions. He's got an album, Meditation, Meditation 4 a.m., Meditation Afternoon, Meditation and Formation. So that kind of sets up a, a service in itself, you know. Great. Well, it's wonderful to have you on the show, hear more about what the church has really launched and the way it's keeping this music alive. So Archbishop King, I just want to thank you for coming on State of the Bay and sharing a bit of the the story of the Church of John Coltrane with us. Thank you so much. We're very pleased to be a part. 
Well, that's State of the Bay this week. Um, tonight's show is produced by Sam Klein-Markman and Wendy Holcomb. A special thanks to Sam, who is off to a Fulbright in Brazil. We'll miss him. Tonight's show was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. A replay of Your Call is coming up next. I'm Grace Wan. Good night, and thanks for listening.